Lord, thank you, thank you that we can stand in the power of Christ. That we don't have to fear death, judgment, condemnation. That through Christ and his work on the cross, that we can stand fully forgiven before you. Lord, as we look at the peace that you have made with us through Christ, we pray that you will also help us as we open your word right now. Learn how to apply this peace and these peacemaking principles and the gospel to our relationships with other people as we know that we face various conflicts, various challenges, various forms of strife and strain in our relationships. Lord, please help us during this time right now as we open your word to see how we can live at peace more and more with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today I do want to talk about one of the most practical uh, topics that we can ever talk about, whether it's in church or in any, any other setting. And it's also one of the most important topics. And it's the topic of how we deal with personal conflict that we face with other people. This topic of conflict is one of the most unpleasant realities that we can face in our life. We live in a fallen and in a broken world that, that faces many unpleasant situations, things like death and taxes and sickness and, and war. But on a personal basis, I think this idea of personal conflict that we can have with other people is one of the most unpleasant realities that we can face. As we all know, conflict with other people can start at a very young age. I think of when I was young, uh, one of the people I had the most conflict with was my sister. Uh, if you have siblings or if you know of, of people who are siblings, you know that sibling rivalry and conflict among siblings can start at a very young age. I think of some of the things that happened with my sister and I. She's three years younger than I am. We had a pretty good relationship growing up. Um, we have a very good relationship now. Uh, but we did have those common sibling conflicts. One of the classic things was when we'd get into a vehicle. We'd oftentimes be fighting over who gets to sit in what seat. And once we got situated in there, somehow we never managed to avoid annoying each other uh, to no end. It was a common refrain in our vehicles growing up of, Dad, tell Adrian to stop bothering me. Or, Dad, tell Brandon to stop, to stop um, making noise or to stop poking me or to, to get his stuff out of my place. That was very common. And there were a number of peacemaking principles instituted in our home to try to draw some lines of peace and conflict, conflict resolution um, in our family. For instance, uh, at our dinner table, my sister and I sat at 90 degree angles from each other. We ate together as a family most nights. Uh, but we had a place between us and this table called No Man's Land. No Man's Land is a place where neither one of us could put our feet. Because inevitably we'd put our feet on this particular bar that's a support for the table. And the other person would want their feet there as well and it started a big argument. Now even though we had No Man's Land, where neither one of us were supposed to put our feet, Still, a common refrain at our dinner table is, Mommy, Daddy, tell Brandon to get his feet off no man's land. Because somehow my feet still ended up there oftentimes. And then in a similar vein, in our bathroom where my sister and I shared a bathroom, it was one of those um, bathrooms where you had two different sinks with a countertop between them. And we literally in our teenage years had a piece of tape that ran right down the center of that countertop that would divide one side from the other so that my stuff would be on the one side and her stuff would be on the other. And that was to try to alleviate conflict because uh, we would bicker with each other when, when our stuff would begin intermingling and getting encroaching on each other's side and stuff like that. So the tape was, was a, an attempt at preventing conflict between us. Now, again, I'm sure that each of us, whether you have siblings or not, has experienced that sort of petty childhood conflict. 
The reality is, as we grow, the conflict oftentimes doesn't go away. We continue to want to assert our own agenda, to want things our way. And so when we become teenagers, we deal with conflict. I mean, oftentimes teenagers' life is filled with drama of conflict, not just with uh, parents or with siblings, but also with friends at school. And we grow up to be adults, and we still are dealing with conflict. We can all probably think of circumstances in our lives where we've been, had some sort of strife between us and a co-worker, between us and a family member, between us and a neighbor, between us and someone we just happened to run into in the grocery store. Conflict among people is very common in this world. And sadly, it can lead to a lot of sleep, sleeplessness at night. It can lead to a lot of stress. I think we would all, if we could, want to eliminate conflict from our lives and we would feel like if we did, did that, we'd be able to live lives that are more joyful, uh, less stressful, more fulfilling. How do we deal with conflict in our lives? This is the topic that we're addressing today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 3. Uh, James 3, we're going to be looking at the end of this chapter today and then the beginning of chapter 4. We're continuing our series called Follower Apps. Follower Apps is all about applications we can make to our lives to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. And we're doing this by looking through the book of James. James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. In this passage we're looking at today, we're going to see James contrasting um, a lifestyle that's characterized by conflict. He's going to be contrasting that with a lifestyle that's characterized by peacemaking. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen as I begin reading this passage, beginning in verse 13 of James 3. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. As I said, we're going to be looking at this passage in two different parts. One part is going to be looking at the side of conflict. The other part is going to be looking at the side of peacemaking. And the main thing that, that James is saying in this passage is that conflict and peacemaking both originate in the heart. We're first going to look at how conflict originates in the heart. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know what, one of the realities in this world is that conflict is very common. Again, we all know this from experience, whether it is with family members or with friends or with co-workers or with the random person down the street. Conflict is very common. But I think it's helpful to clarify what conflict is in the context that we're discussing it today. Conflict is not necessarily just when there's a little disagreement or a difference of opinions. Um, that can lead to conflict, 
Um, but, but just because there's a simple disagreement or, or difference of opinions doesn't automatically make that into a conflict. I mean, you can just have a, a nice, uh, respectful, civil discussion about these things. In the same way, if you see someone who needs some sort of correction or that someone who needs to improve something that's going on in their lives, if you talk with them about that, that's not automatically conflict, even though that can lead to conflict. Conflict is when there's more of a butting of heads, when emotions rise a little bit more, when, when maybe there's a little bit more anger, when, when there's some sort of hurt or personal, um, when things become a little bit more personal in the issue. That's when a situation grows into some form of conflict. And sometimes the conflict that we face is big and loud. It's very obvious to people around us that we are facing conflict. Um, I mean, that's when, when the anger boils over, when it becomes obvious to those around us, when there might be yelling um, or, or just hard feelings. Uh, this illustration from Calvin and Hobbes it gives a, a little uh, image, a picture of what some types of conflict are like. It's, it's loud, and people around, it, around us, when we're in this type of conflict, definitely notice there's conflict taking place. Other conflict is more quiet, more subdued, at least externally, but we allow it to boil on the inside. It's kind of like this picture of this couple who, they're really ignoring each other. You can tell that there's something going on there, but they aren't really addressing it directly with one another. Oftentimes this to- sort of conflict grows in, in the form of bitterness or grudges inside of us. Oftentimes it doesn't just stay inside of us though, but it also doesn't come out in such an obvious, um, obvious way as the first type of conflict we were talking about. This type of conflict oftentimes is externalized in, in some sort of passive-aggressive behavior where we put on some sort of nice front where we, where we say nice things with our mouths, but behind our back we're gossiping about others or we're trying to demean others by our words or by our actions. And so there are several different types of conflict. Um, what we need to recognize, though, is that conflict is everywhere, even in churches. Um, I mean, so many churches, so many de- denominations have been formed through the years because of church conflict. You get a, a, an individual or group of people in a church or in a denomination, and they have conflict with others there. And so they decide, you know what? I don't like being with you. I'm going to go start my own church down the road. Or I'm even going to start my own denomination. Many of the churches and the denominations that are, especially around this country, have been formed because of conflict. One of the number one reasons that pastors leave congregations is because they get fed up with conflict. Conflict is a common reality, whether outside or inside the church. And we really shouldn't be surprised when we face conflict in our lives, because we live in a broken and a fallen world. Think about back at the beginning of Genesis Right after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a few sons. Uh, A couple of them were Cain and Abel. We know that that very soon after sin entered the world, uh, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Conflict. I mean, it happened there at the beginning of the world, and it's still happening now, and it'll continue to happen until Jesus returns. But when we face conflict in our lives, we need to recognize that what's going on in the conflict, oftentimes there's more than meets the eye there. Um, There's more than just the the issue that the conflict is over. There's oftentimes something taking place below the surface. It's kind of like you have a car that has lights on your dash. If you get a check engine light that comes on or a light that indicates there's a problem with your battery or with your brakes, that light is simply an indicator that there's something going on under the hood this is not healthy that needs to be addressed. I think that conflict is very similar to that. When, when we face conflict in our relationships or when we see conflict that someone else is dealing with, 
it's an indicator that there's something going on below the surface that is not very healthy. Because conflict originates in the heart. And it really originates, as this passage will show, as we'll look at it in just a minute, it originates in a very self-centered heart. Look at this. Back in verse 14, James is talking, first of all, about harboring bitter envy. Envy is this desire to want what something else, someone else has. Or it's a desire, um, or it's a displeasure when we see someone else succeeding in some aspect of their life. This envy causes us to despise others because we want what they have, or we don't like the accolades or the good things that they're getting. And that's one of the sources of conflict, bitter envy. James also points out selfish ambition. Oftentimes conflicts uh, result or come as a result of selfish ambition that is in our lives where we want something. We want our way. We put our own desires and our own wants up on a pedestal and don't really consider what other people around us may be thinking. This leads uh, to this idea of pride, that, that we focus on ourselves at the expense of others. Again, you see this starting at a very young age. Um, my son, Micaiah, one of his best friends is Luke, uh, David and Chris's um, son. Uh, they're together a lot. Uh, they, they enjoy each other, but you get some rivalry at times. You, you definitely see some selfishness come out. Uh, I know my son definitely struggles with sharing, not just with Luke, but with everyone. But it's interesting when I come home at the end of a day to hear Micaiah's report of what happened that day. Um, oftentimes, he and Luke are together majority of the days each week. And guess what Micaiah focuses on as he's telling me about the day? He's not focusing on the good things that he did. He's not focusing on the good things that Luke did. He's not focusing on the ways that he got into trouble. No. He's focusing on the things that Luke did wrong to get Luke into trouble that day. That Luke was crying. Uh, that Luke didn't like the stroller. That Luke stole Micaiah's toy. That Luke broke Micaiah's sunglasses. That's what happens. I and mean, we become self-centered. As we get older, we may be able to mask that a little bit better. But we still have that same selfish, self-centered tendency that we want to elevate ourselves and that we easily get disgusted with those around us and we focus on the wrongdoings of others. And we focus, we don't focus on their good points. We focus on the bad points. And we don't really focus on ourselves much at all sometimes. That's what, except for our own desires and our own wants. We don't have an accurate view of ourselves. That what, that's what happens when we have pride and selfish ambition and bitter envy that is taking place in our hearts. And you can see how this can easily lead to conflict in our lives. I think this idea of pride and conflict and selfish ambition has a lot of applications in our lives. I mean, you oftentimes hear that two things that you should never discuss are politics and religion. But these things are important topics. I think it points to even in these two topics, politics and religion, it's very important that we look at our hearts when we're addressing these topics in conversation. Because oftentimes, even if we believe that we're right in what we're saying, we can negate all the words we say if our attitude is poor, if we have a very prideful attitude, if we're, if we're conceited in what we're saying, if we're angry in what we're saying, we negate anything good that's coming out of our mouths with that bad attitude. I mean, think about politics, even in the state right now. We know that, that politics in Wisconsin are a mess right now. Um, we have a, a, a vote coming up on Tuesday. It, it's very good to vote in elections. It's good to exercise that freedom that we have, uh, to be responsible for 
for helping shape the direction of our state and our nation. But at the very same time, it's very important that we, uh, that we check our attitude, especially as we're thinking about our relationships with others who may have different political views than us. I mean, you watch the news, you hear conversations going on in the newspaper or even in your workplace or your family. It's amazing how much anger gets built in to the conversations that we have about politics. And it's not an issue, I'm not speaking to the issue of what's right or who's right and who's wrong in the issues of politics. I'm speaking to the issue of our attitudes when we bring up these issues. Because we as Christians should be first and foremost to be the ones who want to uh, speak respectfully and to, and to speak um, with, in a way that builds peace. And even if we agree to disagree, to still be respectful and to be loving and to say, you know what, other people have the right to have their opinions just as I want to have the right to have my own opinions. These same things hold true in re- context of religious debate or doctrinal differences or church differences. I mean, you oftentimes see people who are harshly debating uh, different interpretations of the Bible or different things that different churches or pastors are doing out there or different books that have come out. I think that we do a disservice to, to our representation of Jesus Christ if we are harsh with others if we are mean to others, if we allow pride to well up in us to a point where we don't allow others to voice their opinions. Again, I'm not saying that every opinion out there on religious issues or political issues or other issues is right, but we should allow people the opportunity to share what their opinion is and not to tear them down even if they have a different opinion than we, than we do. Oftentimes when we see anger and harshness well up in these types of conversations, it points back to bitterness or to pride or to envy or selfish ambition that has taken a hold of our hearts. So we have the question of how do we address conflict in our lives? I said there are two aspects we're looking at today. First is conflict. Second is peacemaking. How do we become peacemakers? Well, I think there's a tendency in our lives to want to um, just say, you know what, you just need to be nice. You need to live at peace with others. But we need to recognize this doesn't always work all that well if you try to put some sort of external um, agenda or rules on people to make peace. Because conflict and peacemaking both originate in the heart. I mean, think back to the story I shared about my sister and I, how, um, how we would have no man's land or how we'd have a piece of tape. Did that stop us from fighting even, even over the very things that those, uh, um, those practices were meant to stop? No. External rules can't always change us because we have to address things deeper in the heart. I came across a story recently about a church in the state of New York. Um, There's a practice in this church that you may be familiar with. We don't really do it specifically here at Freedom's, but in churches that have more of a traditional liturgy where they have a specific order of service they follow and specific things they do and say during the service, there's this concept of passing the peace. How many of you are familiar with the concept of passing the peace in church? I see a few hands. Passing the peace is this idea of when uh, sometime during the service, people stand up and they greet each other. They, they look each other in the eyes, shake each other's hand and say, peace be with you. And then the, res- the correct response is peace be with you. Now, I've been in a variety of churches that have done this at various times. But the, in this particular church in New York, um, there's a new priest who came in who wanted to institute this practice in his church, passing the peace. It seems like an easy enough practice, a nice way to um, just have people greet each other during the service and express warm greetings and welcome to one another. 
But in this particular church, the priest was not aware, or at least didn't really think about the consequences of some long-held grudges and bitterness uh, that were within the congregation. So the priest one day instituted this passing of the peace. And they did it week in, week out for a number of weeks. But the people there who held this bitterness and grudges against one another could not stand looking each other in the eye and sincerely saying, peace be with you. So what did they do? They fired the priest. I'm serious about this. They did not want to deal with the bitterness and with the grudges they were dealing with. And if you've ever seen someone or experienced in your own life bitterness and grudges that have been built up for years and years, you know how hard it is to root those things out and to address them in a healthy way. So this congregation, they fired the priest and brought in another one who would be more sympathetic to their specific wants and their needs. It doesn't always work to implement exterior uh, or external rules to try to, um, to try to regulate peacemaking. We need to address things down on the heart level. And that's what James is talking about in the rest of this passage. He says that just as conflict originates in the heart, so does peace originate in the heart. In verse 18 here, he says that peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. There's a call scripturally to be peacemakers. That's our Christian calling, to be a peacemaker. And this didn't start with James. It started at least with Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, a peacemaker is someone who is intentional to try to live at peace in their relationships with others. And they are also intentional to help build peace when they see conflicted relationships between other people that they know. They're seeking to build and to make peace. And in Matthew, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. In this context, to be called a son of God, it, it's, a, it's a Jewish way of speaking to say that someone who's a son of God shares the character of God. That God is a peacemaking God. And if we are peacemakers as well, we share in his, his peacemaking character. Now, in this, in this passage, James is talking about not, not having a selfish heart, having a humble, Christ-centered heart is essential if we want to be peacemakers in our relationships. I, I see this specifically in verse 17 of James chapter 3. He says, uh, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It's pure, meaning it doesn't have any sort of mixed motives, but it seeks to, to honestly and sincerely please God and honor God. It's peace-loving. I have a question for you. Do you care more in your life about getting things your way? Or do you care more about seeking what's the best solution and trying to live that out in a peace-loving way? Because, again, oftentimes when we are in conflict with one another, it's because we are asserting our selfish ambitions or, or doing so in a prideful way rather than seeking what is the best decision overall and then trying to fulfill that in a peace-loving way. James says that the heart of a peacemaker is peace-loving. I, um, I want to look down briefly in, in chapter 4, and then we'll return to verse 17. James says in 4, verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? I mean, it's those, those desires that battle within us that causes these quarrels. But if we are peace-loving, we're going to be able to, to set aside our own selfish desires to put the greater good into practice. So we're called to be peace-loving. Back in verse 17, James says that part of a peacemaker's heart is to be considerate. 
to think not only of what we want, but what might be good in others' eyes as well. He says that part of a peacemaking heart is to be submissive. Now, this is a very difficult word to translate. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. But this idea of being submissive is the idea of teachability, of, of being respectful, of being willing to learn from someone else. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln uh, back during the Civil War. And he, was, he had a, a, a politician who was really speaking very loudly into his ear about something that this politician thought should be done uh, with the army in the war. And to try to please this politician, uh, Abraham Lincoln decided to move a certain regiment of the army to a different location. And so he gave the command to do so. And then when his secretary of war, Edwin Stanton, received this order, he refused to carry it out. And he said, you know, the president in this decision is a fool. Now those are some bold words. But now listen to Lincoln's response, his teachability, his submissiveness when he heard his secretary of war's uh, thought on this topic. Lincoln said, if Stanton said I'm a fool, I must be, for he is nearly always right. I'll see for myself. And then the two of them talked about it, and very quickly in that conversation as the two of them were talking, President Lincoln recognized his error in what he had done, and he reversed the order and went with what the secretary of war was recommending. And it was a very good decision. But this shows how a degree of teachability uh, goes a long way towards diffusing conflict. That's a part of a peacemaker's heart, that they're willing to be teachable. They're willing to hear other perspectives before jumping to a conclusion. There's, there's the idea in verse 17 of being full of mercy, of not being judgmental, of, of at times even not giving people the punishment they deserve, but showing mercy to others just as God has shown mercy to us. And we're called to be impartial and sincere. Being sincere is um, it, it's the opposite of being passive-aggressive. It's, it's the opposite of being hypocritical. Being sincere is being authentic, being real, where what people see is what they get. That, that when we wish people well, when we wish them peace, that we really mean it. These are the characteristics of a humble, Christ-centered heart that seeks to be a peacemaker with those around us. Now, when many people in our culture, when they hear this idea of peacemaking, when they hear the idea of gentleness and of, of teachability, to them this sounds very weak. But you know what? This is actually a form of strength. Because anyone can blow their top. Anyone can shout angry words or do mean things or gossip. It takes incredible supernatural strength to hold your tongue when you want to lash out. It takes incredible strength to show grace and mercy when you want to show judgment. And Jesus is our model in this. I mean, if humility, and with, if meekness, and with, if gentleness are signs of weakness, Jesus is one of the weakest people to ever walk this earth. But instead, he's one of the strongest because he was able to embody the peacemaking characteristics and the grace and the love that he is calling us to live out as well. And I want to share with us today uh, four peacemaking principles that we can put into practice in our lives. Uh, these are practical steps. They're really sequential steps that when we are dealing with conflict in our lives with someone else, that we can put these steps into practice to help make peace with those around us. The first step is to humbly examine yourself. Again, peacemaking begins in the heart just as conflict begins in the heart. And so humbly examining ourselves before we do anything else in conflict means that we're looking at 
looking at ourselves. Is this conflict originating from my own selfishness? What are my motives in this issue? Have I contributed in some way to this conflict? Very often when we face some sort of conflict with others, we have contributed at least something to the conflict. And we need to be ready to confess this to God. And also if we're talking with this other party, to confess it to them as well. That can go a long way towards resolving uh, the conflict. So first of all, we need to humbly examine ourselves. Where is our heart in the situation? Do we have the humble Christ-centered heart? Or do we have more of a self-centered heart? The next step is to go to the source. In fact, in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches this very specifically. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now, there are times when we can certainly overlook offenses. If the offense against us, uh, the, the conflict, the hurt, is relatively small in terms of it, it isn't seriously dishonoring to God, it doesn't permanently damage our relationship with this other person, it isn't damaging any uh, person or anyone else, we can choose to overlook this issue, overlook this hurt. That's a form of forgiveness if we choose not to dwell on it any longer. In fact, the Bible commends it. In, in Proverbs 19.11, it says, It is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. But if the offense, if the conflict is too big to overlook, then we need to go directly to the person one-on-one to address it. I think the best way to do this is to speak with them face-to-face, or if you can't do face-to-face, talk over the phone. Email and Facebook and things like that are very poor choices oftentimes for dealing with conflict. Um, One of the practices I have is that when I get an email from someone complaining about something or, or when they're upset about something, my general principle is that I pick up the phone and call them in order to either schedule a face-to-face meeting with them or if it's a smaller issue, to resolve it over the phone. Because it's very hard to resolve conflict, especially if it's a significant issue over email or over Facebook. It's so much easier and so much better to do it face-to-face or at the very least over the phone. As we're doing this, we need to constantly be checking our attitude. Because it's very easy, again, for pride to well up for us to get judgmental towards others, for us to get harsh towards others, for us to allow that selfish ambition to enter in. So we need to be constantly checking our attitude. Even as we're talking with someone else about the issue, if we're going to them one-on-one, check our attitude. Uh, Recently, I was made aware of an excellent article that's written uh, by John Newton. Um, You may know the name John Newton. He was the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, John Newton, I mean, he's most well-known for Amazing Grace, but there's a remarkable letter that he sent to one of his pastor friends uh, many years ago uh, that I want to read a little bit from this morning in this context of of checking our attitude. Uh, John Newton is writing to his pastor friend because his pastor friend was planning to write a critical article about another pastor who had deviated from biblical teaching. And John Newton is writing to his pastor friend saying, you know, you need to be really careful as you're addressing this issue. Because even if you say, even if you are right in the issues you're addressing, if you have the wrong attitude, you nullify everything that you have said. I'm going to read a couple lines from this letter. He said that if our zeal is embittered by expressions of anger, invective, or scorn, we may think we are doing service to the cause of truth, when in reality we shall only bring it into discredit. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights? 
We need to constantly be checking our attitude. It's very easy to allow uh, conflict and bitterness to take over our hearts to where we're blind to our own anger and our own bitterness and our own pride. So we need to constantly be checking our hearts to make sure that our attitude is not overshadowing the, the issue that we are trying to address with the person we're in conflict with. And finally, our goal in all this is to seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is where there's a rebuilding of the relationship. And, and a part of this oftentimes entails forgiveness. Forgiveness can be very hard when we're in conflict with someone else, when we feel hurt. Forgiveness is not so much an emotion as it is a decision. Uh, there's a wonderful book out there uh, by Ken Sandy. It's called The Peacemaker. I highly recommend it if you want to learn more about uh, conflict resolution with those around you from a biblical perspective. We have several copies of this book in the church library. Feel free to check it out. Again, it's called The Peacemaker. But in this book, Ken Sandy talks about what forgiveness really is. And he says that forgiveness entails four decisions. And these aren't emotional decisions. They're active decisions that we make that can help bring about forgiveness and peacemaking. Here are the four decisions. Forgiveness is a decision to say, I will not dwell on this incident any longer. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. And I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That's what forgiveness is. It doesn't mean that, that all the hurt and the pain has gone away or that our emotions towards them have changed all that much. But it's a rational decision not to hold it against them, not to bring it up anymore to them or to anyone else and not to allow it to, to tarnish our relationship with them any longer. Now, there are times that we're going to seek reconciliation with people that, and try to be peacemakers when the other person just will have nothing of it. In those times, we need to entrust this person to God, trusting that he is the judge and that he will take care of it, that we release the situation to them. In fact, we see Jesus doing this very thing. In 1 Peter 2.23, it's talking about when Jesus was being beaten and crucified. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted the situation to God, the conflict to God, and trusted that God was going to judge it justly. And, and especially in those times where we've tried to reconcile, where we've gone to them one-on-one, where we've been prayerful, where we've checked our attitude, when this reconciliation still does not happen, we need to entrust it to God. Keep praying about the situation. Keep checking our heart to make sure bitterness isn't growing up inside of us and trust it ultimately to God and let him be the judge in the situation. Now, in closing today, I want to share a strategy with you that I hope none of us ever implement, but it's a strategy for how you can destroy the church, destroy your family, destroy your workplace, destroy friendships. Let me tell you what the strategy is. If you want to destroy your church or your workplace or your family or other uh, contexts, then make a big deal out of really small things. Be very nitpicky and don't back down when other people um, have a different opinion than you. If you want to tear down a church, um, a home, a workplace, then don't go to the source when you have a conflict with them. Hold it inside. Let the bitterness grow. Uh, cherish that bitterness and those grudges. And then share it with others. Bring others to gossip about the, uh, the conflict with other people. Tell them about how wrong this person is. And, and try to draw out their own bitterness and gossip about what other people are complaining about too. 
If you do these things, and if you draw a few other people in, you will be a long way down the road towards destroying a church, or destroying a family, destroying a workplace, destroying some other relationship. Our call is not to do these things. And my prayer, which I pray every single day, is for the peace and the unity of Freedom's Church. God calls us to be peacemakers. And in doing so, if we are men and women who are living at peace in our relationships and are helping others to find peace in their relationships as well, then we will be truly characterized as followers of Christ because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. We're called to be peacemakers in His name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You were willing to make peace between us and God on the cross. And we pray that You will help us to make peace with those around us. God, this isn't always easy, but please help us to drop our pride, drop our selfish ambition, and to follow you and to point others to you as well and offer forgiveness where it is needed. Lord, this morning, uh, we want to lift up the uh, political situation in our state. We know that it's a very tenuous situation. We know it's a very rancorous situation where there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger towards different people. We pray for your peace in this situation that whatever takes place as a result of the upcoming elections um, and thereafter, that you will bring the state into a place of peace and that we as Christians will lead the way in peacemaking in this situation. Lord, we lift up our missionaries in South Africa, John and Lauren Emanuelson. We thank you that John is able to learn uh, the language down there so quickly that even on the Easter he's able to preach a sermon in the native language down there. God, we pray that you will continue to bless their ministry and work powerfully through them to make disciples and to be peacemakers. Now, as we bring back to you a portion of uh, the finances that you've entrusted to us, we pray that you'll use these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings to spread your gospel of peace around this community and around the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.